Hi, I'm Christopher, and welcome to Mysteries at Midnight, your destination for timeless enigmas and captivating mystery stories, narrated in the soothing style of a bedtime story. This story was first published on the Sleep Cove podcast, where millions of listeners relax their bodies and calm their minds by listening to meditations, hypnosis and classic bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place, so we present Mysteries at Midnight, where you will hear all new mystery stories every week. So here is a story that was first published on Sleep Cove. I hope you enjoy it, and please remember to subscribe. Hi and welcome to Sleep Cove with me Christopher. Tonight you'll hear the enchanting Arabian Nights tale of the Princess of Derabar. Adventure into a world of mystical deserts and ancient wonders as you follow this breathtaking odyssey of a courageous princess determined to reclaim her kingdom and survive the perils of her enemies. With magic, bravery and the power of love, she embarks on a spellbinding quest that will captivate your heart and imagination. So please get cosy and ready to hear this bedtime story, and let's begin. The Story of the Princess of Derebar My father was the king of a city among the isles named Derabar, and I was his only child, for in spite of his many prayers directed to that end, heaven had not granted him a son. And for his cause, though, he bestowed upon my education all imaginable care. The sight of me remained displeasing to him. In order the better to forget his sorrow, he spent his days in hunting, and so he chanced on the event which led to all our misfortunes. For one day, as he was riding unattended in the forest, night overtook him and he knew not which way to turn. Presently in the distance, he perceived a light, and advancing towards it, he came upon a hut, within which a monstrous giant stood basting an ox that roasted before the fire. In the further corner of the hut lay a beautiful woman, with hands bound, and a face betokening the deepest affliction, while at her feet a young child, between two and three years of age, stretched up his arms, and wailed without ceasing. At this sight, my father was filled with compassion, but his desire to effect her rescue was restrained for a while by fear that a failure might only make matters worse. In the meantime, 
the giant had drained a pitcher of wine, sat down to eat. Presently he turned himself about and addressed the lady. Charming princess, said he, why will you not accept the good things which are within your reach? Only yield to me the love that I demand, and you will find in me the gentlest and most considerate of lords. To these advances, however, the lady replied with resolution and courage. Vile monster, she cried, every time I look at you does but increase my hatred and loathing towards you. Unchangeable as the foulness of your appearance is the disgust with which you inspire me. These words of violent provocation were no sooner uttered than the giant, beside himself with rage, drew his sword and seizing the lady by the hair, lifted her from the ground in preparation for the blow that would have ended all, whereupon seeing that not a moment was to be lost, my father drew his bow and let an arrow fly with so good an aim that it pierced the heart of the giant and he fell dead. Immediately entering the hut, my father raised the lady from the swoon into which she had fallen, and severing her bonds, gave her the needed reassurance that all danger was now over. Before long, he learned in answer to his inquiries, that she had been wife to a chief of the Saracens, in which service the slain giant had, on account of his great strength, occupied a position of trust. Thus, however, he had shamelessly betrayed, for having concealed a violent passion for his master's wife, he first persuaded the chief in an expedition which terminated in his death, and then returning in haste, carried away by force not only the lady, but her child also. From this degrading bondage, my father's act had now saved her, but though thus relieved of immediate danger, the wife of the Saracen chief was both solitary and friendless, for not only was she too far removed from her own land to return to it unaided, but she had small hope, should she ever arrive there, of securing for her son his rightful inheritance. This being the case, my father moved with compassion, determined to adopt the child as his own, and as the lady gratefully accepted his proposal, the next day, as soon as it was night, he returned to Darabar, bringing with him mother and son. Thus it came about, 
that the son of a Saracen chief was brought up in my father's palace like a prince of the blood royal, and so, on attaining to manhood, having both grace and good looks to recommend him, he came to forget the comparative loneliness of his origin, and aspiring to become my father's heir, had the presumption to demand my hand in marriage, a claim so audacious merited the severest punishment, yet my father merely remarked that he had other views concerning me, and with so lenient a rebuke would have passed the matter by. His refusal, however, excited in the proud youth their liveliest resentment, seeing that he could not obtain his ambition by fair means, he immediately entered into conspiracy, and having treacherously slain my father, caused himself to be made king in his place. Fresh from this monstrous crime, he renewed his suit for my hand, and was preparing to enforce it by violence, when the vizier who alone of all my father's court had remained faithful to his memory, found means to convey me from the palace to a sailing vessel, which was leaving harbour the same night. Here for a time I seemed to have reached safety, but when we had only three days at sea, a violent storm arose, and the ship driving helplessly before it, struck upon a rock, and went down, leaving as sole survivor the one who least wished to be spared. How I was saved I know not, nor how long I lay unfriended by the desolate shore upon which I had been cast, but scarcely had the consciousness of life returned to me when I heard a multitudinous sound of swift galloping, and presently feeling myself lifted by men's hands. I turned and saw halting near me a troop of Arab horsemen, and at their head a youth royally arrayed and beautiful as the morning, thus when my fortunes were at their lowest, I beheld him whom heaven had sent not only to afford me that deliverance of which I stood so much in need, but also to restore me to the rank due to my birth. But let me confess, that after this young prince had secured me with the most tender solicitude, conducting me in honour to his own palace, and there lodging me under his mother's protection, I experienced towards him a feeling of duty and gratitude, such as would have made his lightest wish my 
law. When, therefore, with an ardent and ever-increasing devotion, he desired me to become his bride, I could not, upon the completion of my recovery, refuse him the happiness he sought. But the festivities of our marriage were scarcely ended, when suddenly by night the city in which we dwelt was attacked by a band of travelling marauders. The attack was so unexpected and so well planned that the town was stormed and the garrison cut to pieces before any news of the event had reached the palace. Under cover of darkness, we managed to escape, and fleeing to the seashore, we took refuge on a small fishing boat, in which we immediately put out to sea, hoping to find in the rude winds and waves a safer shelter than our own walls had afforded us. For two days we drifted with wind and tide, not knowing any better direction in which to turn. Upon the third, we perceived with relief a ship bearing down upon us, but as we watched its approach, our satisfaction was soon changed to apprehension and dread, for we saw clearly that those on board were neither fishermen nor traders, but pirates. With rude shouts, they boarded our small boat, and seizing my husband and myself, carried us captive to their own vessel. Here the one who was their leader advanced towards me, and pulled aside my veil, whereupon a great clamour instantly arose among the crew, each contending for the possession of me. The dispute upon this point grew so warm that presently they fell to fighting, and a bitter and a deadly conflict was maintained till at last only a single pirate was left. This one, who now regarded himself as my owner, proceeded to inform me of what was to be my fate. I have, he said, a friend in Cairo who has promised me a rich reward if I can supply him with a slave more beautiful than any of those that his harem now contains. This one, who now regarded himself as my owner, proceeded to inform me of what was to be my fate. I have, he said, a friend in Cairo, who has promised me a rich reward, if I can supply him with a slave, more beautiful than any of those that his harem now contains. The distinction of earning me this reward shall be yours, but tell me, 
he went on, turning towards the place where my husband stood bound. Who is this youth that accompanies you? Is he a lover, or a brother, or only a servant? Sir, said I, he is my husband. In that case, he replied, out of pity we must get rid of him, for I would not afflict him needlessly with the sight of another's happiness. And saying so, he took my husband all bound as he was, and threw him into the sea. So great was my grief at the sight of this cruel deed, that I had not been bound myself, I should undoubtedly have sought the same end to my sufferings. But for the sake of future profit, the pirate took the most watchful care of me, not only so long as we were on board the ship, but also when, a few days later, we came to port, and there joined ourselves to a large caravan, which was about to start on the road to Cairo. While thus travelling in apparent safety, we were suddenly attacked by the terrible giant who lately owned this castle. After a long and dubious conflict, the pirate and all who stood by him were slain, while I and those of the merchants who had remained, looking on, were seized, and brought hither as prisoners, destined, as it seemed, for a fate far more lingering and terrible. The rest of my story, brave prince, I need not here account, since the shaping of it was largely in your own hands, and since to you alone is owed the happiness of its conclusion. When the princess of Derabar had thus finished the tale of her wanderings, Kodadad hastened to ensure her how deep was his sympathy for all her misfortunes. But it will allow yourself, he continued, to be guided by me. Your future life shall be one of safety and tranquility. You have but to come as my bride, and the king of Haran will offer you an honourable welcome to his court. While, as regards myself, my whole life shall be devoted to securing for you the happiness which your grace and noble qualities prove that you deserve, and that you may not regard this proposal as too presumptuous. I have now to inform you, and also these princes, concerning my birth and rank, for I too am a son of the king of Haran, born to him at the court of Samaria, by his wife, the princess Peruzi, whom he had sent unjustly into banishment. A declaration on the part of Kodadad 
so accorded with the inclinations of the princess that she at once yielded her consent, and as the castle was full of provisions suitable for the occasions, preparations were made for Stowe solemnize the marriage, and then for all together to set forth on the return journey to Haran. As for the princess though, they received Kodadad's news with every outward protestation of joy. They were in fact more filled with apprehension and jealousy than before, for they could not but fear that his favour with the king would be greatly increased and become far more dangerous to their interests when the true facts of his birth were revealed. No sooner therefore had Kodadad and the princess passed to their nuptials, while his brethren entered into a conspiracy to slay him, and at the first halt upon their homeward journey, taking advantage of their lack of protection which a tent affords, they came upon their brother by night, and stabbing him in a hundred places as he lay asleep, left him for dead in the arms of his bride. They then broke up the camp, and returned with all haste to the city of Haran, where, with a falsely invented tale, they excused themselves to the king for their long absence. In the meantime, Kodadad lay so spent by loss of blood that there remained in him no signs of life. The princess, his wife, distraught with grief, had already given him up for dead. Oh heaven, she cried, bathing his body with her tears, why am I thus ever condemned to bring on others disasters and death, and why for a second time have I been deprived of the one I was about to love? And thus she continued to cry in piteous lamentation, and to gaze on the senseless form lying before her. She thought that she perceived on their lips a faint motion of breath. At once her hopes revived, and springing to her feet, she ran instantly into the direction of the nearest village, hoping to find there a surgeon or one that had the skill in binding of wounds. Returning after a time with the aid that she had summoned, she found to her grief the place where Kodadad had lain left vacant, nor was there any trace or indication of the fate which had overtaken him. Overwhelmed by this final catastrophe, and believing that some wild beast must have devoured him, she suffered herself to be led away by the surgeon, who, in pity for one 
so greatly afflicted, placed her under the shelter of his own roof, and lavished upon her every mark of consideration and respect, so when she had sufficiently recovered for her griefs to find utterance, he gathered from her own lips all the circumstances of her story, her name and rank, the high and valiant deeds of the prince her husband, and the base ingratitude of his brethren, and perceiving that her grief and sufferings had so robbed her of the desire of life, that without some end on which to direct her, would she presently pass into a decline, the surgeon endeavoured to arouse her in the pursuit of that just vengeance where the murder of her husband had earned. Do not, he said, let the death of so noble a prince become a benefit to his enemies. Let us go together to the king of Haran and make known to him the guilt of these wicked brethren. For surely the name of Kodadad should live in a story. But if you, whose honour he saved, now sink under your affliction, his name perishes with you, and you have not retrieved your debt. These words roused the princess from her deep despondency, forming her resolution on the surgeon's advice. She arose instantly, and prepared herself for the journey, and with such haste and diligence, she did not pursue her project, that within two days, she and her companion arrived at the city of Haran. Here strange news awaited them, for all at the caravansary, it was told how lately, there had come to the city an exiled wife of the king, Princess Perosi by name, inquiring for news of her lost son, and how, as now appeared, this son had already been under a feigned designation at his father's court, and after performing many exploits, and deeds of heroism had disappeared, none knew whither. Forty-nine sons had the king by different wives, but all these, it was declared, he would willingly put to death, so only that Kodadad might be restored to him. Now when the princess of Darabar heard this, she said, I will go to the Queen Perosi and make known to her the fate of her son, and when we have wept together and drawn comfort from each other in our grief, then we will go before the king and demand vengeance on the murderers. But the surgeon said, Have a care what you do, for if the princess of Haran learn of your arrival, 
they will not rest till they have done to you as they did to your husband. Let us therefore proceed with secrecy, and do you on no account, let your presence here be known, till the king has been thoroughly informed of the whole matter. Then leaving the princess in a place discreetly chosen, he went forth into the streets and began to direct his steps towards the palace. Presently he was met by a lady, mounted upon a mule, richly adorned, and behind her followed a great troop of guards and attendants. As she approached, the populace ran out of their houses, and stood in rows to see her go by, and when she passed, all bowed down with their faces to the earth. The surgeon inquired of a beggar whether this one was one of the king's wives. Yes, brother, replied the beggar, and the best of them all, for she is the mother of Prince Kodadad, whom now that he is lost, all hold in love and reverence. And thus, each day she goes to the mosque, to hear the prayers which the king has ordered for her son's safe return. Seeing his course now clear, the surgeon went and stood at the door of the mosque, waiting the queen's departure, and when she came forth with all her attendants, he plucked one of them by the sleeve and said to him, If the queen would have news of her son, Prince Kodadad, let her send for the stranger who will be found waiting at the door of her palace. So as soon as Perosi had returned to her apartments, the slave went in and gave her his mistress the message. This she sent in all haste and caused the surgeon to be brought before her. And the surgeon prostrated himself and said, O queen, let not the grief of the tidings which I bear be visited upon me, but on them that were the cause of it. And she answered him, Have peace and say on. So he told her, as has been set forth, the full story of all the courage and prowess of Kodadad, and of his generosity towards his brethren, also of his marriage to the princess of Derabar, and of what followed after. But when he came to speak of the slaying of her son, the tender mother, as though receiving in her own body the strokes of the murderers, fell forward upon the ground, and there for a while lay motionless without a sign. When, however, the surgeon, aided by her women, had restored her to her consciousness, 
Then Pierozzi, putting aside all personal grief, set her mind upon the accomplishment of the duty which now lay before her. Go instantly, she said, and tell the princess of Derebar that the king will shortly receive her with all the honour due to her rank. As for yourself, be assured that your services will be remembered. Hardly had the surgeon departed when the king himself entered, and the sight of his queen's deep affliction at once informed him that something dreadful must have occurred. Alas, she cried, our son no longer exists, nor is it even possible to pay to his body those last rites which were due to his rank and virtue. For stricken by treacherous hands and left to perish unprotected, he has fallen prey to wild beasts so that not a trace of him remains. She then proceeded to inform her husband of all the horrible circumstances which the surgeon had narrated, but before she had ended, the king became so transported with rage and grief that he could no longer deny the setting in motion of his just vengeance. Repairing in haste to the hall of audience, where courtiers and suitors stood waiting, he summoned to him his grand vizier, with so much fury of countenance that all trembled with their lives. Go instantly, he cried, arrest all the princes and convey them under a strong guard to the prison assigned for murderers. The vizier, not daring to question an order so terribly uttered, went forth and fulfilled the king's command with all speed. On his return to the palace for the presentation of his report, a further order almost equally surprising awaited him. The king described to him a certain inn lying in a poor quarter of the city. Go thither, said he, take with you slaves and high attendants, a white mule from the royal stables, and a guard of honour, and bring hither with all the respect due to her rank, the young princess whom you shall find there. The vizier, with revived spirits, went forth to fulfil his second mission, so much more agreeable to him than the first, and presently there arose from the streets leading to the palace the acclamations of the populace because of the magnificence and splendour which announced the arrival 
of the unknown princess, the king as a token of respect stood waiting at the palace gates to receive her, and taking her hand he led her to the apartments of the queen Pirozzi. Here at the meeting of mother and wife, a scene of the most tender and heart-rending affliction took place. The king himself was so moved by it that he had not the heart to refuse to them any request, so when they came and besought for the absent those funeral honours which under other circumstances would have been his due, he gave orders for a dome of marble to be erected on the plain by which the city of Haran lies surrounded, and with such speed was the work put in hand, and so large was the number of men employed by it, that within three days the entire building was completed. On the day following, the funeral rites began. All was done with the greatest solemnity and splendour. First came the king, attended by his vizier, and all the officers and the lords of his palace, and entering the tomb in which lay an effigy of Kodadad, they seated themselves on carpets of mourning bordered with gold. Then followed the chiefs of the army, mounted upon horses and bewailing the loss of him, he would led them to victory. Behind these came old men upon black mules, with long robes and flowing beards, and after these maidens on white horses, with heads unveiled, bearing in their hands baskets of precious stones. Now when these had approached and compassed, the dome three times about, then the king rose up to speak the dismissal of the dead, touching with his brow the tomb whereon the effigy lay, he cried in a loud voice, O my dear son, O light of mine eyes, O joy that is lost to me forever. After him all the lords and the chiefs and the elders came and prostrated themselves in like manner, and when the ceremony was ended, the doors of the tomb were shut, and all the people returned to the city. Now after this there was prayer and fasting in the mosque for eight days, and on the ninth the king gave orders that the princes were to be beheaded, but meanwhile the neighbouring powers, whose arms the king of Haran had defeated, as soon as they heard that Kodadad was dead, 
banded themselves together in a strong alliance, and with a great host began to advance upon the city. Then the king caused the execution to be postponed, and making a hasty levy of forces, went forth to meet the enemy in the open plain. And there the battle was joined with such valour and determination on both sides, that for a time the issue remained doubtful. Nevertheless, because the men of Haran were fewer in number, they began to be surrounded by their enemies. But at the very moment, when all seemed lost, they saw in the distance a large body of horsemen advancing at the charge, and while both combatants were yet uncertain of their purpose, these fell furiously and without warning upon the ranks of the allies, and throwing them into sudden disorder, drove them in route from the field. With the success of their arms thus established, the two leaders of the victorious forces advanced to meet each other in the presence of the whole army, and great was the joy and astonishment of the king when he discovered in the leader of the lately arrived troop his long-lost son Kodadad. The prince for his part was equally delighted to find in his father's welcome the recognition for which he had yearned. When the long transport of their meeting embrace was over, the prince, as they began to converse, perceived with surprise how much was already known to the king of past events. What? he inquired. Has one of my brothers awakened to his guilt, and confessed that which I had meant should ever remain a secret? Not so, replied the king, from the princess of Derabar alone have I learned the truth, for she it was who came to demand vengeance for the crime which your brothers would still have concealed. At this unlooked for news of the safety of the princess and her arrival, he then heard about the safety of the princess and of her arrival at his father's court. Kodadad's joy was beyond words, and greatly was it increased when he heard of his mother's reinstatement in the king's favour with the honour and dignity due to her rank. He now began to perceive how events had shaped themselves in his absence, and how the king had already become informed of the bond that existed between them. As for the rest of his adventures, together with the circumstance which had led to his disappearance and supposed death, they were soon explained. For when the princess had left Kodadad in her desperate search for aid, 
there chanced that way a travelling peddler, and he, finding the youth apparently deserted and dying of his wounds, took pity on him, and placing him upon his mule, bore him to his own house. There, with medicinal herbs and simple arts unknown to the palaces of kings, he had accomplished a cure which others would not have thought possible, so that in a short time Kodadad's strength was completely restored. Thereupon, the prince, impatient for reunion with those whom he loved, bestowed on the peddler all the wealth that he possessed, and immediately set forth towards the city of Haran. On the road, news reached of the fresh outbreak of hostilities, followed by the invasion of his father's territory. Passing from village to village, he roused and armed the inhabitants, and by the excellence of his example, made such soldiers of them, that they were able in the fortunate moment of their arrival, to decide the issue of the conflict, and give victory to the king's arms. And now sir, said the prince in conclusion, I have only one request to make, since in the event all things have turned out so happily, I beg you to pardon my brothers in order that I may prove to them in the future how groundless were the resentment and jealousy that they felt toward me. These generous sentiments drew tears from the king's eyes and removed from his mind all doubt as to the wisdom of the resolution he had been forming. Immediately before the assembled army, he declared Kodadad his heir, and as an act of grace to celebrate his son's return, gave orders for the princes to be released. He then led Kodadad with all speed to the palace, where Peruzi and her daughter-in-law were anxiously awaiting them. In the joy of that meeting, the prince and his wife were repaid a thousandfold for all their griefs and hardships they had undergone, and their delight in each other's society remained so great that in all the world no happiness has been known to equal it. The princess half died of shame when the means by which their pardon had been procured was revealed to them, but before long the natural insensibility of their characters reasserted itself and they recovered.